1: Well, the metaverse and TikTok have got competition, and really, there's no surprise for anyone that it sounds like artificial and intelligence. And right now, it's shiny, isn't it? Super shiny. Like the metaverse hype cycle, most of us are now salivating with what could be, might be, possibly in AI, and more accurately of late, generative AI. It seems the postulations and a few hallucinations are redlining. So on the mics today is a posse of execs who might bring a reality check to what and how how AI is actually being viewed and deployed by blue chips, and what might become. NAB's Chief Marketing Officer Susanna Ristevsky is just out of a three-year marketing technology transformation, the biggest in the bank's history, where it has switched out 95% of the tech tools that NAB's marketing team used to ply their craft. Now NAB is ready to do some interesting stuff, but what? Hang around and you might just find out. Joining Susanna is Tabcorp's chief analytics and data officer, Amy Sheenash, where the wagering giant recently carved out a significant budget to create next labs. A specialist unit where it will pilot and experiment and rounding out this panel is Accenture Song's ANZ president and co-founder of The Monkeys, Mark Green, and the global creative chairperson at Accenture Song, Nick Law, who just happens to be an Australian expat living and beaming in from New York. Welcome to you all and I should say to our listeners that in this AI conversation we're all working off the premise that AI can be broadly dropped into three streams, process, predictive and generative. Uh, so Susanna, let's start with you with some context, shall we? And, and welcome. You've just spent three years, I think, deep in a massive marketing technology overhaul. Just give us a bit of a sense on on the pain you've inflicted on yourself and the team and why you've done it. And welcome, Susanna.
2: Thank you, Paul. I have inflicted a lot of pain on the marketing <laughs> yes. community as we've pretty much swapped out all of the tools. Um delighted that we have done it and we are ready to go with um, the next round of AI. So essentially what we've done is we have had to get rid of what we refer to as legacy technology because it's not fit for purpose. And actually we've got two lots of things. So we wanted to create one way, same way in our ability to do marketing communications. Now, that sounds simple, but for a bank, it's actually quite complex because we are piped into a number of different platforms. So it's been an incredibly complex process, but it now means we've got things like data decisions engines in PEGA, CDP platforms in um, Telium, and we are able to do personalised communications at scale. So I'm super excited Harder for a bank, actually, than it is for a startup. I I keep saying to my team, I find it extraordinary the amount of dollars that we have to spend to be able to create a marketing technology stack, whereas someone that's a small business can literally get some stuff off the shelf.
1: What range are we talking about there, Susanna? What are we talking about in terms of investment?
2: It's about $15 million a year for um, three years, so reasonable investment.
1: Quite substantial, yeah. And what was your tech stack looking like before versus... What it looks like now, is it simplified and and smaller or has it actually got more?
2: No, simplified and smaller. One way, same way. So the whole marketing community is now using one tech stack, one data decision engine, one decision platform, one campaign system, um, one data platform, and we are rocking and rumbling.
1: How much effort or how much change did it take on the team to – you were flying two systems at once, I guess. So you're over that phase now? You're, you're- we're,
2: we're still working through, so we haven't quite got off um, a couple of systems that we want to get off. And, you know, we we could talk to it if we like as we sort of go through Machine learning and artificial intelligence has been around for quite some time. The way we've approached it is we have to run and change at the same time. So we didn't stop for three years. We had to continue to do effective and efficient and, you know, one-to-one communications. So we've been doing that. We've been adding user cases to it, adding campaigns to it. We were at 50 million personalised communications three years ago. We're now, you know, circling around 500 personal communications.
1: With all that and that top line, and, and there's, a, there's another whole conversation and just how you managed to do that three-year program, but it sounds like you are ready for what might ever come your way, which gets us to AI and applied AI, uh, Susanna. So your top line thoughts on this, uh, are we overcooking what it might do to uh, the industry and all of us in the short term? Uh, and perhaps talk to some of the, the challenges in adopting this tech uh, and what some of your early cases are in AI.
2: Yeah, I don't think we're overcooking it. I think everyone's, um, you know, already been exposed to machine learning and the benefits of, of that. I think our challenge is going to be um, how do we integrate it into the technology that we've already got? And again, that applies for, you know, NAB, which is huge, and small businesses that are using off-the-shelf products. So you know, the same way when we were rolling out our existing marketing technology stack, we need to think about um, how do you integrate it into your existing technology rather than creating Frankenstein technology. Data management that is a critical success factor will continue to be a critical success factor. What goes in is going to determine what goes out. Skill gaps. How do you train your people to to use the technology, use the additional you know tools that we've got? Cost you know, what are you going to implement, how are you going to implement and how are you going to learn along the way? You know, one of the things that we're most excited about is we've, we've created a technology stack that gives you scale that actually now is perfect timing to think about, well, how do you add the creative to that? It's one thing to create the right decision at the right time through the right channel, but I'm excited because, you know, it's also the right creative actually, otherwise we're sending out rubbish.
1: Um, some of the use cases, um, Susanna, we talked earlier about using it for sort of simple market intelligence, uh, generative that is, but you're also, you've got some AI, for, bots for service, you're, you're talking about use cases in automation, you're sort of tripling that I think. Just some of those early, early plays and okay, how are we going to use or how are you going to use at least generative AI as we all talk about it and get uh, frothed?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, you referred to it earlier on. There's there's process improvement. How do you use it to get cost out? We're also using it for simple stuff like conventions, you know, like if you're doing an ad in small business, if you go have a look, every single ad has got a cafe owner that represents right. small business. Um, so there's some really fun user cases, um, augmenting our service proposition. We can't have a banker service absolutely every customer. Chatbots are fantastic. Scaling the creative options that we've got available, um, making sure that the communications do match up. So if you if you've managed to identify a specific message, make sure the creatives attached to it. You know, media optimization. I could go on. There's there's tons of use cases. But so
1: these are all the things that you are looking at now or doing. Doing. Mm, already, so you know, let's say generative AI has been you know, on our radar for eight months, late last year. You are working pretty quickly to to deploy some stuff there. That was, is it the same as metaverse, for example, Susanna? Is this the same hype or is it different?
2: No, it's it's different because actually, you can play with it right now. Like you can all jump on, you know, ChatGPT right now and get them to write you a brief. As a starting point, so it's different to metaverse. In metaverse, we're all trying to work out which platform. How do you set it up? You couldn't scale it like a small. Well, what business. the hell
1: is it first? That's I still haven't answered that.
2: Yeah. Whereas with you know right now, everyone can access this, and you know you can Canva. There's so many tools out there now that are accessible, democratized, that you can play around with. So.
1: So very quickly, just when you talked about this, the from 50 million to 500 million personalized messages, that's what the new technology you've deployed allows you to do. And now you're going to work out how you apply some AI to this to, to get to some, for instance, creative and content. Yeah. That's where are you at with that now then?
2: Yeah, so we've we've done AB testing, for instance. We we've done dynamic creative optimization, but you still can't get the scale. So now what we're looking at is, well, you know, what? How do you generate scalable content that's personalized, that's interesting? You know, there's so much more. I'm really excited about that user case of how do you scale content?
1: Yes. Amy, um, welcome. Tabcorp is also, like NAB, been in a pretty big tech transformation program, right? Where is that at, Amy? And, and welcome to you.
3: Yeah, thank you, Paul. Yeah, we're in the middle of a digital transformation as well as a technology uh, transformation. So from the digital front, so we just launched our new app uh, last November, actually less than a year ago. And now we're doing monthly releases. So there's lots of new features. It's more user-friendly, you know, going to the app. So now where we're at is trying to use more understanding of the usage behavior. So our younger audience and older audience, they use the app very, very differently. So we want to tailor that experience towards our users. From the uh, technology transformation perspective, we just kicked off a uh, data acceleration program, which is modernizing our infrastructure, our technology, really building the real-time data pipelines that connect some of our most uh, important data sources, the customer information, the trading information, and our digital information.
1: That was all pretty separate before, was it? It wasn't unified, if you like.
3: Correct. Yeah. So the timing is, you know, to to use all these data sources together to create that contextual, you know, the real time engagement was really difficult without this.
1: Great. And so, just getting to this very interesting development that Tabcorp's done around uh, Next Labs. What is it, Amy? Uh, who's in it, and what the hell will it do? <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, it's uh, the Dex lab, it's a very small team. So we focus on the research and development of the next generation capabilities and some of the game changers, uh, really experiment and explore uh, what's in it for us. And also we want to use this as the vehicle to attract and retain the top talent that is not you know readily available to the industry. And also a vehicle we can collaborate with universities and, you know, the research communities.
1: What sort of work are you talking, are you looking at there? What's possible or what are you thinking the next labs are going to do?
3: Yeah, so we got uh, on a few things. So one is around the uh, research and development and the prototyping for like a uh, generative AI, for example. We're looking at, you know, contextual uh, recommendation and some simulation and the performance um, optimization, uh, some of the more virtual and immersive experience sort of content and really prototype that and give us a view how do we use it, but also scale, like Susanna said, that's uh, quite important in the, when it comes to the, um, not a lab thing, but it's a field and the production level.
1: You're the technical whiz, uh, Amy, at least from uh, this old analog editor's uh, standpoint. Um, What are a couple of the sort of the big watch outs from your perspective, from a technical uh, perspective for CMOs and marketing teams in this whole AI uh, transition as we move to it? Any any particular watch outs there from the technology and technical side that obviously marketing is catching up, but has been sort of lower, tech has had a lower priority historically for marketing. What What should they be looking out for?
3: Yeah, I think, so I I would mention the uh, uh, privacy and the, you know, trust stuff, we will talk about that later. Just from the technical perspective, I think one is around the maturity, uh, the other one is around how do we identify the untapped opportunity. So from the maturity perspective, you know, the... You know the macro env- environment we absolutely significantly shifted. So that the generative AI is no longer a distant thing; it is now. But the maturity for the early adopters is still, you know, pretty big, and there's a lot of noise. As an example, you know, we're all really excited about ChatGPT. It's very uh, creative, and uh, other. Large language models, for example. But the, the biggest problem with it right now is the hallucination. This yes. uh, basically makes things up. So we've just implemented our in house uh, large language model based on the open source models because we can't use ChatGPT for privacy and security reasons. And our first version was wildly wrong. <laughs> so even if we just right. asking, you know, what, what, uh, when was Tapco found? And it gives us the totally wrong answers. It, uh, was 1535
1: or something, <laughs> was it? Sort of about 500
3: years old. <laughs> Slightly better than that. It's right. the 19th, but uh, uh, pretty bad. Uh, so we changed the different models and it's, it's starting to improve just out the basic facts. Uh, but if you're talking about sports content, for instance, those are, uh, it's important to get it right. And we're on our third version. You know, uh, improved a lot, but the lessons is, we really have to think about improving something else. You know, add how do you interpret the actual knowledge and your curated content into these language models, and what data source you need to train this model to really uh, tailor it to your business. So, so that's a a kind of you just have to test and learn and really understand. How to do it out of box is uh, is not quite there yet, you know, for yeah
1: still a bit dangerous. sounds like you need to do a one one for dummies in which I will join uh, amy uh mark Mark green um you know Amy talked about hallucinations, speaking of those you witnessed the AI bubble and squeak and can last month. Was there anything meaningful that uh, that came out of the conversation that was absolutely pounding over there on that and meaningful and um anything beyond posturing uh welcome Mark Green too
4: uh thank you Paul yeah look i I do think so i I think the amount of conversation around AI and generative AI and CAN was immense. And I think the reason for that is where there's kind of great unrest, new technology lies great creative opportunity. And whilst everyone's getting their heads around it, there are things happening out in the world where these technologies uh, technologies are being employed in really interesting ways. So, you know, from, you know, musicians, allowing their voice to be used in multiple songs to, um, you know, scientists understanding the health of the the Great Barrier Reef in real time to try and find solutions from car companies um, being able to service their customers and keep their cars on the road. Businesses are using applied intelligence and generative AI in really interesting ways already. So, You know, I'm always optimistic about the potential of technology and creativity, and, you know, in Cannes we're starting to see the uh, real focus on applied intelligence as a mechanism to do interesting things, to connect customers and brands in interesting ways. And, um, yeah, there's so so many different uh, ideas that are starting to uh, fly around. Uh, I saw one the other day where, you know, the Sydney Jewish Museum is digitising Holocaust survivors in a new exhibition where you can use AI and next-generation language technologies to hear survivors' stories but then also interact with the survivor and ask questions to understand the experience more.
1: In real time.
4: In real time. So a lot of these um, survivors are ageing and won't be with us for too much longer. So it also creates that library and history. So I think there's like, you know, like when you put your mind to it, It's not just in the pursuit of um, flogging goods and services. There's probably real application for uh, advancing humanity in different ways. And, you know, it's easy to be sceptical and and, and worried, uh, as we always are, and as we've seen, you know, technology in the wrong hands can, um, you know, create a lot of devastating consequences. But in the right hands, with the right minds around Mm -hmm. it, you can really... um, you know, do interesting things, and I think that's where we're focused on. Is you know, what are the applications of the technology that we can help brands and clients and social causes advance? And um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm excited about the potential. And you know, I think um, to quote uh, my boss, our boss Nick, uh, I think he said something like, "Smart people make the world go round, creative people people make the world." A great place to live in and I think with technology if you kind of put the creative minds to you know how it can be harnessed then you know you can really sort of advance some of the industries that uh, we're all involved in so you know I don't want to be you know like the cheerleader but I do think there is um, with caution and skill a big opportunity here.
1: Mark, uh, metaverse versus AI, both had pretty big hype ramp ups, Uh, one more got more substance than
4: the other. I don't know that it's necessarily a comparison. I think it's what what you can see immediately, though, is the application of generative AI and its use. Like it's, uh, you know, my son who's 13 is using it to help him, inverted commas, with his homework.
1: Probably more than his dad is, I'd say. (laughs)
4: <laughs> yeah, to businesses that are kind of using it in game-changing ways. So uh, look, I, 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 f- I feel like they've both got a role in different ways. But um, yeah, the, the, I think the power of generative AI is going to be really significant. It's going to be a real game-changer.
1: What are you seeing more broadly in in this in the Australian market uh, Marker, around how blue chips are planning for AI deployments? Um, you know, Susanna and Amy seem quite pragmatic, actually, and practical in what they're doing. And you know, versus some of the sort of here's what's going to happen and you know the world's going to turn upside down. These are very practical applications. What are you seeing more broadly across your client portfolio and in
4: market? Yeah, look, I think clients are using it um, and are prepared to use it. In practical, sensible ways, right now, right there's experimentations with um, virtual shoppers, shopping assistants, with uh, you know assembling uh, recipes on behalf of a food manufacturer, to kind of using, as Susanna referenced, kind of chat uh, to service its customers. So I think we're at that stage where there's almost look, almost every client has a position. Is formulating a position or investing in it right now. So it's very real. It's not uh, something that's going to happen in in the near future. It's happening right now.
1: And the nature of the sort of conversations you're being asked to contribute to, is it literally in, with Accenture, obviously, you, you sort of beyond comm, you do comms and further down, are the briefs coming in at a tech level first or are they coming in at what do we do at a customer facing point?
4: Look, I I think the starting point can be varied, right? Like, I think depending on where you sit on the, I guess, the service uh, spectrum, there's, um, you know, the briefs are coming straight into our implied intelligence team. They're coming into our, you know, contact center team from a service perspective. They're coming into our creative and content team from a more inspiration and blue sky ideation perspective. Uh, they're coming into our commerce team uh, to help with the sales process and supply chain. So its application is quite wide. So, you know, there's there's the whole, you know, when you're talking about generative AI, it's you, you're probably finding yourself surrounded by a whole bunch of different people from, you know, developers to creatives to designers to technologists.
1: Unifying a bunch of functions by the sound of it and people and different interests, Um, a really good point. Mark, you're also... Prone to pretty clever creative work. I think probably a grand, a grand Prix at Cannes this year might just support that sort of uh, bold notion. Creative is an area getting plenty of um, sort of perhaps artificial attention, if you like. Nick Law, who we'll hear from shortly, talks about a moral panic hitting the creative community, um, he thinks it is uh, it is artificial, that one. What do you see happening in the in the creative area? Uh, Susanna talked about it. Uh, what happens to the creative humans and their output and what happens to output? And, again, probably a little bit of blue sky, but now and blue sky, I guess, Mark.
4: I fear not for the creative community in this evolution.
1: Good ones, anyway.
4: Yeah, that's right. Look, I, 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 we're already seeing uh, – look, I, I mean, I've shared an idea recently with Nick, you know, that's like – like I hold up as good as any we've ever created, and it's at the that its foundation is generative AI. So we were actually seeing some of probably the most interesting work we're involved in right now has at its core um, some form of applied intelligence.
1: Mm. And so you're not worried about the creative community, Nick Law. Welcome from New York. Thanks for being me. And do you want to add to that on the on the impact on creative, uh, Nick?
0: Well, I, I've been through uh, a few other big tech transformations, and by the way, even calling it tech, the people that call things tech are, are people that haven't learned the thing that's called tech. Like, you yeah, know, that's me, by the way. Well, broadcast is a pretty amazing technology. It changed the industry, and there was also a period when, you know, it was thought in the creative community that unless you did print, you weren't creative, and that somehow broadcast was this mucky little, you know, and so we've seen this with digital. Now there's is moral panic around this because people are making the, the ridiculous assumption that, that you're not going to need creative thinking and that we're just going to recycle everything from a large language model, you know, which is in the land, or whatever that model might be. It's, it, you know, the aggregate, it's the aggregate of, of, of human input anyway. Right. I mean, it, to me, the, the biggest changes are in, a certain, there'll be a different process, right? Because you will be, you know, the, the space between an idea and realizing that idea is just collapsed into a prompt. You know, in previous uh, lives, that distance between the idea and realizing it took a lot of time. I started using a, you know, back in Sydney when I was at my, my first job, I was using a draft. 1950s or something, was it Nick? Yeah, or? Right. It was it's sepia. It's all done in sepia. But it was, yeah, right. I, I was using a drafting table. I was using things like LetraSet and, and uh, you know, and, and, and it would take, I could maybe get one idea out of my head a bad sort of resolution of that idea in a week or maybe even two weeks. And then software came along and desktop publishing. And then I could get maybe three ideas out of my head in three days. And now I can get almost infinite ideas out of my head instantly. So the whole process and the discipline has changed from from keeping that idea in your head and sculpting it to the best resolution you can with the tools in your hands to now getting immediate high resolution ideas realized and so then curating those ideas, combining them, refining them, editing them. So the sort of whole process has just been pushed towards it back. But you still need classic the things that haven't changed is you need you need a focus, you need uh, taste, you need to make the you know, you need to make decisions about what works with what and and you're still going to end up with something that is either great or isn't. I mean the problem right now is that we're, we're so astonished by the parlour trick of being able to create things from a prompt that, that we're not really looking at the stuff, the output, with any sort of discernment. It's a little bit like when film first came along. It was enough to see a moving image. You weren't interrogating it for its, its artistic value or its dramatic arc. You were just staring. its like lack of audio. Yeah, you were, <laughs> you were just looking at this train coming at you on a on a on on a... I mm. so thought it was amazing. And when I look at the output, for example you know, from mid-journey, um, it looks like a lot of
1: engineers... Just explain for those that don't know, mid-journey is...
0: mid is a diffusion model that it creates images from, in, from text input. I mean, there, are, there, there will be other inputs, but right now it's mostly text. And those prompts, you know, as you can get pretty high resolution and beautiful images, beautiful in the sense that they're convincingly well-produced, uh, but, but we're in this period now where we're just enjoying the fact that this can actually happen. If you look at most of the stuff that's coming out of mid-journey, it looks like a 13-year-old's idea of sort of sci-fi, you know. It's because it's, it's largely done by the engineering culture. And, and I just don't think that it has – we haven't got to a point where the uh, creative community is using it and mastering it enough for us to actually look at this – at the output from these models, you know, clearly – we're still just so astonished by that. But we're going to get there much quicker. And I think, um, as Susanna said, uh, the thing that is remarkable about this technology is speed. Uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, there was a bunch of um, specific purpose models being built behind closed doors. But now we've got a sort of public general purpose model that's being adapted in a dizzying amount of, you know, context. And so the, ex- the change, I think, we're going to look back next year from Cannes. And, and see a whole body of work that's coming out of something where there was
1: nothing this year. Well, all of you talk about speed and volume. I think you know, it might surprise you, Nick, um, that I started on a typewriter and I spent a lot of time with liquid paper, and you talk about volume and speed. You go from that to a word processor and suddenly things change. But this, the, you do have a view that uh, managing what you call abundance of ideas, the abundance of ideas and executions versus labouring over one, that is something that will uh, – managing that will be a big, big uh, – needs to be a big focus.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Because because the discipline of it, in some ways in in some ways it, people could get in a, a, a this sort of frantic spiral of abundance of not making decisions. And again, this is why having a sort of intense and a clear strategy going in is so important. You know, you, you can't you, you can you can you can go down a rabbit hole from a creative process point of view where you where the the multitude just confuses you as opposed to you know I mean there is something about Simplicity—that is—is—is a, is a discipline, you know. I spent my time at Apple understanding the value of saying no to things, right? And it takes a courage and a, and an, and, a, and and an intent to do that. And I think that that's going to become a much bigger part of the process of creation now, just because you know there is a scenario where the long tail of mediocre content that comes out of out of the ability for everyone to use this. Is gonna be so long that the average audience for all the content on the internet will be one, which would be the author of the content. Just because it's just gonna be there's gonna be so much stuff. So if if the if the middle is sort of infinite and and mediocre because there's just so much of it, then the then the, the best stuff that is done with a sort of artfulness and intention is gonna be even more valuable.
1: I'm really interested in your take on, on mass personalization and where Susanna sees great promise. You do have some reservations, probably alluded to it a little bit now and sort of looking, being careful not to produce a world of vanilla and same, same, but um, you do have some challenges around mass personalization and particularly as technology and AI allows industry to do much more. Just talk to us a little bit about that, Nick.
0: Well, first of all, I, don't, I, I think one of the, the big misses in the last sort of uh, tech revolution in advertising, which was, you know, a performance marketing that, that could reach the right person at the right time in the right context, in many cases missed the next thing, which was, okay, what's the quality of that content, right? And so we're, we became so obsessed with the pipes. And, I, and as I, I mean, I've built my career off the internet, so I'm, I'm a big believer in the power of it. But I think we divided ourselves into sort of a, a tribe of, of brand thinkers at the top that were very artful. And making beautiful things that no one was seeing because they lost touch with with technology and uh, and modern media. and then And then this emerging tribe of, of people that really understood modern media and technology and are making really mediocre things that everyone's seeing. So the first thing just to just to be clear about is that if you can you can do as much personalized messaging as you want, if the quality's not good, it doesn't matter, right? But, but the second thing is that I do, where I believe that personalization has the greatest power is when there's a utility attached to it. My problems are very specific. And this is why AI is so useful in customer service. Like when I, when I have a problem with a carrier, my problem is, it is often not solved by the decision tree that I go down to, you know, on the phone, because it might be really specific. It might be idiosyncratic. And that's where mass personalization can be really useful. They've given me specific information, specific solutions to our problems. Where, where I think we need to temper our enthusiasm in mass personalization is when we get further up the funnel, because a brand in the end is a common understanding of the value of a company. And if we atomize our audience so much that we don't have that common understanding, then, then we don't have a brand anymore. You know? and, and so I do think that we have, to, we have to be, doesn't mean it can't be module, doesn't mean it still can't be contextual. It just, means, it just means we have to have a discipline around some commonalities about, you know, like there's a difference between, you can, you can make someone feel something personal without giving them a personal message. All the best movies do that. All the best content does that. Um, and it's why I still think there's power in this sort of upper funnel brand building stuff complemented with this stuff, which is more closer to the ground, more useful, more personalized. But I, I, I do worry that if, we, if, if everything becomes about mass personalization, then all of a sudden the, the brand disappears into mist.
1: Susanna, let's go, uh, you guess get your thoughts on, on this role in, of what creative plays, what role creative plays in this. And I guess, you know, you alluded to it even without the machines earlier where you've got small business messaging coming from the sector that has a cafe in every shot and that's without the machines, right? So that's just sort of, um, sort of humans making calls on what's relevant. If you've got machines and mass volume, how do you see creative differentiating in mass personalization? That can be really hard.
2: Yeah. So I, I think actually Nick and I agree on um, the concept of mass personalization versus what brand brings at top of the funnel. There is nothing that will replace creativity, humanity, storytelling, and, in fact, the more digital we get, the more human um, we need to be. So, firstly, you can never replace creativity. I I think the trick is how do you use technology, how do you use creative agencies to maximise the number of interaction points you have with customers with the right creative So we've had this challenge of being able to send the right message at the right time through the right channel for a number of years. Um, And up until this point, we weren't able to present scalable creative at bottom of the funnel. That's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about scalable, personalized creative at the bottom of the funnel. What do I try and do at the bottom of the funnel? At the bottom of the funnel, I want to be able to augment my service proposition create good content that my customers would like to see, things like financial well being, financial tips. Um but they have to be aligned to the broader message, the broader brand message, the broader emotional priming, um, the what is it that my brand represents. And and that's that's the challenge, and it? it's as simple and as complicated as that. Yeah
1: and the historical bit from personalization and and nick made the point right is that sort of the assumption has been that if you uh, you've solved the problem by reaching the right person at the right time but as, as nick talks about you know if it's ugly and ham-fisted it doesn't matter and that's the bit where you're i guess you're banking on some of this tech some ai to do better creative that's also relevant and personalized But how do you do that so have you got any thoughts have you done any trials?
2: Well, we've, we've done trials. So we've done trials, but a small scale. I'll give you an example. On-site personalization. Like if we know, and, you know, with data ethics and, you know, I preface all of this by, you know, must think about de-identifying data, must think about privacy, must think about customers actually wanting to receive these messages, differentiating between a marketing message and a service message. So that is all just like you can't do business unless you've got that, that in train. But with on-site personalisation, if we know a customer has been somewhere on our, um, you know, in the app or have started an application on an equipment finance loan and they jump on our website, it would be silly for us to serve a credit card ad, right? Of course, you want to serve them information that they are actually been looking for or, or is relevant to them. And, of course, you want to serve creative, that is, you know, suits, beautiful, um, resonates and does the job. So, so that's what I mean by personalised content. I'm not like saying throw it out there, and you know, just throw out more messages for the sake of. I'm saying actually I can do more scalable messages now because I am banking on the fact that the creative and the content is relevant and suitable what our customers want to see yeah
1: that's a good example it's a great example um so really quickly mark and nick so do you have any sort of early thoughts on how mass personalized creative can lift and be of a higher standard how do you do that
0: well i mean i I think that the promise of 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 early sort of programmatic and performance marketing was often unrealized and uh, you know we all have stories of being chased around the internet after you've already bought a bag on Instagram, right?
1: What handbag did you buy, Nick? Yeah, it, it was what a brand. A, a nice crocodile
0: one, a little over the, ah, right. over the shoulder Good. satchel. No, I, I do think that it's got better, by the way. But the, so there's that part. There's actually the promise that Susanna's talking about, which we're going to get closer to and be more precise because of, I think, these new tools. Uh, but there's also the just dignifying the bottom of the funnel with a bit of craft and clarity. You know, in, you know when, I, when I actually spent a lot of time trying to do this at, at Apple because at Apple, the brand is a, a highly produced design aspirational brand and, and, and the risk of not applying the same design craft, the same writing, the same clarity in, in even sort of modular and programmatic units was that you would degrade the brand. that, that every, You know, the 99.5% of people that weren't clicking through just felt a little bit worse about Apple because I, it just didn't feel like the care uh, and and you know was being imputed by this by the by the thing that was in front of them. So, and part of this is not just the sort of cultural programmatic being very mathematical. It was also it's also I blame a lot of it on creatives that just just didn't want to to work in this more systematic way. And this is I think where again well, I'm going to agree with, with Susanna. Like you can actually do beautiful mass personalization. If you have a systematic mind, like designers that do really great identity systems, sort of analogous to designers and creatives that should be doing these more modular units. It's like you make the pieces beautiful, but you also make the pieces fit together in a way that has a sort of unity to it. And it's a a specific creative skill. It's different to writing a TV script. It's also different to, to writing a line of code. It's like something else. And so I just think we need... To be, do we need to take these mediums with, you know, with the sort of care and, and creative excellence as we're we've, as we've applying to the top of the funnel?
1: Uh, Mark, to Nick's point, um, different creative types needed to do this. Can they be re- recalibrated, if you like, to you know, do this stuff that may have been bigger picture, more glamorous sort of executions in the past?
4: Yeah, look, I, I think there's um, you know, di- different minds need to be employed across different mediums and channels and technologies right so it's not the same same people all the way through but I mean fundamentally like this is about kind of getting back to sort of discipline and using technology with humans in mind right like customer experience brand experience there's a there's there's, there's, there's my intelligence friends will say that um You know, how people relate to a brand is a large part emotional, so really influenced by the image of the brand and your relationship with it. That's probably accounts for about 40% of a relationship in the mind of a customer. 40% would also be about product and service experience. Now, that's everything. That's from receiving an ad that's relevant to me to um, informing me that, um, you know, my plane is running 10 minutes late to, you know, it, it's it's every kind of customer interaction. And the last 20% is kind of the image of the brand that is in the corporate community that is kind of um, influenced by uh, the business community and the relationship there. So I think when we think about all of this, we've got to be thinking about how humans are interacting with a company. Because like whether it is the mass-personalized message from the bank or a, a big brand message they all need a kind of a strategy they need to be employed with care and that same customer is seeing it all that's the that's the full funnel customer experience that uh, you know we're in service of and ultimately you know people kind of respond to things that interest them that kind of engage them that are relevant so I think there's, and, and and like all of us, like, you know, we, we have different moments where we're open to emotion, to just getting something done. And I think that's the way we've got to look at, um, you know, how we use technology in a meaningful way. And um, I think that's what's, what continues to make it exciting because we're not just interrupting people's time. We're actually now living with them and they can choose whether they hear us or not because they can either vote with their feet or they can just switch us off, which means that we actually have to be better. We have to be more truthful, we have to be kind of more impactful and engaging. And I, I think that's a that's a really good moment in time because um, you know I think it' got all got a little bit lazy in marketing there for a moment where we could just insert our message here and no one had a choice not to kind of hear us or not.
1: <laughs> totally valid. I mean, there's some been, uh, as you know, there's been some pretty good points made around Martech and Vanilla and just a, that stuff. We should ask both Susanna and Amy a quick take from both of you around um, AI governance in marketing, because obviously ethics and what, how are the ethics and boundaries uh, for using this technology being navigated uh, for both of you and your in your remits? Because there is a bigger, obviously a bigger uh, issue and, and debate going on about um, unleashing the machines for good, bad, or something else. Um, so, uh, Susanna, maybe first with you on, on governance. How does it work for you in a marketing context?
2: First thing is. Get customers permission to actually market to them, um, protect their data, de-identify. I mean, you know, table that stakes given is yeah. the, table stakes, the most important thing. And it all goes, you know, it all goes pear-shaped if we don't do those things. So we're super, super paranoid about all of that, um, which means from a governance perspective, you know, no one in the organisation is allowed to introduce new technology without it going through a formal um, process process. Um, the ethical considerations for me are really interesting too, because, you know, when you're relying on AI algorithms, for instance, um, they can inadvertently perpetuate biases. You know, decisions are made based off the decisions that were previously made. And, and we do need to make sure, you know, as a marketing community that we're not perpetuating, um, bad biases. Um, and we need to make sure that there's always that human over, in, um, over insight over, oversight actually over carefully design and monitoring some of those potential biases that come through it.
1: Mm. And is that the major, that's the sort of the major line of discussion and concern that you have with your peers and and colleagues?
2: Customer privacy, customer consent, um, ethical considerations, one way, same way, um, get everything signed off. You know, we're not going to stop ourselves.
1: Okay. I'm I'm glad it's you doing uh, that, uh, Susanna, not me. Um, (laughs) Amy, uh, for you, what, um, you know, you talked about, you've had a couple of hallucinations, maybe not you, but your team have,
3: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, what Susanna said was totally apply in our industry as well. That's, uh, you know, it's a a starting point. And uh, in addition to that, I think the education side is also really important. You know, we just had, uh, you know, launched a education, you know, creating the awareness from one-on-ones, including what is AI, what is ethics, and all the way to the lectures around the knowledge graph, for example. Uh, I think the improving the literacy uh, literacy. Is going to be a make-or-break factor, almost, in our AI adoption, and uh, for everybody get that knowledge and then build them, you know, into the the work we do is uh, part of the governance and you know step towards building that trust and the experiment and then knowing what is right and what is. Uh, you know, uh, made up. And also from the clarity perspective, we're also developing a a hold stitch and a consistent view because uh, one of these challenges is everybody doing different things and it's very hard to get a consistent approach so we're developing a house view on what is the key you know, opportunity for us, where is the use cases and what's the governance in terms of the ethics and responsible AI perspective, how do we manage the risk and how do we bring on the regulatory uh, side of things on board and where is the processes, you know, lies and who's the accountable in that.
1: Susanna, can I just ask, is this a sort of a priority or a focus just for the CMO or senior marketer level, or does, does your team need to be across this as well? And how, how far does it need to, to get that understanding uh, further down the chain?
2: I'm always telling my team they, they, they should be curious and constantly learning. So at a generic level, you know, you'd be sitting under a rock if you weren't um, interested in this stuff as a marketer. We're educating people. We want them to get involved. We want them to trial, you know, tools that have been, uh, you know, approved by NAB. Uh, But we are starting from the top here. This is a, you know, executive strategy. We want to be able to do one strategy as to how we're going to use it, and there's different user cases. So marketing just happens to be um, part of the organization that is first and thinking about it. But, you know, our risk teams are looking at it. Our finance teams are looking at it. So we are taking it seriously enough to bring it up to exec level and work out what the strategy is at a um, that level and then filter it down.
1: There is an argument um, sort of coming through that a customer experience, uh, particularly as AI rises, that it will usurp marketing communications and even messaging in building reputation and brand. And I know Telstra's former CMO, Jeremy Nicholas, talks about this now that he's no longer a CMO and he's running digital uh, in in the business. He sort of says, you know, experience is um, actually going to build brand more than some of the traditional ways that uh, have been seen to build brand and reputation. Nick, what's your thinking on this, on customer experience versus Perhaps more traditional ways to build and enhance reputation.
0: Well, I've always thought that, um, at least since the advent of the Internet, and at least since we had media that had an interface in front of it, that creating some sort of interface between a customer and a company is a thing that builds a brand, right? I mean, because if once media has an interface in front of it, then you're, just by definition, you're going to be able to interact with whatever a company puts in front of you. And 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 you'll interact with it as much as it's useful or interesting. Um, And so you know, even the word experience has become so sort of um, so broad and amorphous. To me, it's as simple as are you making people feel better about you by by you know by either making something useful or interesting. So you know, but you know, I spent a lot of time in a previous career building out digital sport for Nike, and it was clear to me that when people were using Nike+, Plus, that they were feeling a lot better about Nike than when they walked out of a, uh, out of a living room having muted an ad that just happened to be on during the football, right? I mean, it, it doesn't mean that great storytelling isn't still, isn't still really powerful, but, but you've got to understand in the marketplace of storytelling, advertising finds it hard to compete. And it's pretty hard to sort of carve out that moment when, when, when you can reach a lot of people at the same time. So. So the best way to sort of build your brand is just by turning up and helping people in a way that, you know, with, with your products and services. So if you do that now through generative AI, which, which it seems like this is going to be just a, a huge sort of platform shift across the internet, then that's how you do it.
1: Susanna, your, your thoughts on customer experience for brand and reputation versus what you may have, you know, produced in the past with, with comms?
0: Oh,
2: look, it's rubbish. I mean, experiences are only applicable to customers. (laughs) You know, we have a job to do to be able to make sure that we maintain awareness and consideration and prospects. And, you know, I'm certainly a very big fan of augmenting customer experiences, uh, but our job is broader than that. It's We've got to bring people in.
1: You just say what you think, by the way, Susanna. Mark Green, got any thoughts?
4: Uh, Look, I I I think both Nick and Susanna have covered it. But, you know, I mean, ultimately... You know people respond to things that they like delivered in ways that entertain and engage them so there's always going to be a role for marketing that does that and then the job is actually delivering the product and service in a way that's uh, kind of optimal and as we've seen in recent time businesses that change the game by delivering a better customer experience are the ones that uh, you know, usurp the heritage businesses, and I think there's, uh, so there's so so I think I think they're equally important. They're at they're at service of each other. The strategy should be the same that drives the kind of customer engagement, the brand engagement, the experience, and ultimately using all those things together is is where the power um, and transformation happens. Because um, and you know. <laughs>
1: I want to really quickly get uh, a couple of examples, Nick, what you're seeing globally, uh, some standout examples. You've got them on, on what you're seeing where AI is being used well at the moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, I think if, we, if we're building a stack of, of uh, applications and the ones that are more closer to customer service are the, are the things that I'm seeing scaled and useful right now. I mean, we've, we've implemented a system in, for, for a, uh, a federal government for their social services where we just helped respond to queries a lot quicker using using chatbots it used to take you know weeks to get a response from this social service and and then now you, not unusual is it yeah and so I mean that's a great example of of people feeling a lot better about that that government service uh, thanks to generative AI and the, and the model you know being sort of accurate and, and useful is, is I think that's sort of stuff we're seeing now as I said i I think when we do amazing sort of creative work, I think we're, we're not even going to be thinking about it as generative AI. In the same way that when I look at something that's beautifully designed, I don't think, oh, that's amazing Photoshop. You know, I mean, the underlying, the underlying technology is going to become so mundane that we're going, to, we're going to focus again on the sort of quality of the thinking and the execution.
1: Susanna, just watch out, take out for all of us based on what you're seeing.
2: Don't be scared. Let's get in and have a look and see what
3: we can do with it.
1: As I'd say, at the cricket, have a go, you mug. Amy, your thoughts, uh, final takeouts?
3: Just invest in the, the expertise and improve literacy and experiment and learn fast.
1: Another one to learn fast on. Nick? Well, I mean, as, as,
0: as machines become more human, I, I would like to think that us humans become, uh, don't, don't become more like machines. So, you know, the human agency in this whole exchange between man and machine is, is still the most important thing.
1: It's almost philosophical, Nick. Um, thank you. Uh, Mark Green, your final thoughts?
4: Use the technology, don't forget about the storytelling.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, really, really uh, fascinating. Susanna, Amy, Mark, Nick, thanks for the conversation. I've learned a bit and we go out and I guess, you know, in a few months you might look back around and see what has actually happened. Thanks for joining, stay safe. Watch for the hallucinations. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer, Nick Slater.